Hey there, perfect peeps. Back on another perfect dad dev. We have Lee Briggs in the house uh, from Palumi. How's it going, Lee? Uh, it's great. Thanks. Thanks for, very much for having me, Alex. It's uh, awesome having you on. After after we had a quick discussion about Palumi, I just I had to talk more about it. So this is pretty cool. I'm excited to dive in a little bit further. Um, so. Just kind of a highlight, basically, Plumi allows you to create modern infrastructure as code using any cloud, using familiar languages and tools. So uh, the best part of Plumi is that it's 100% open source. I've actually played around with it uh, since we last talked, and it is it is pretty neat. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to, to dive in a little more. Uh, the first thing that I want to chat about is basically, I know what Plumi is, but what is infrastructure as code and why does Plumi fit? Yeah, sure. So a little little background about myself so that, um, you know, you can be sure that I uh, know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of come from, uh, you know, a more of an operations focused world, uh, a system administration type world. And infrastructure as code has been something that has been around in that kind of environment for quite some time. Um, so previously, you would talk about tools, configuration management tools like Puppet and Ansible, um, and then a, a new a new series of tools kind of has, has appeared over the last five years that really deal with interacting with cloud resources. So Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud, Azure. Um, and a lot of these tools that are available are either very specific to a single cloud provider or they have uniqueness that means that you have to learn a kind of unique configuration language or a, um, a special language that means you like have a learning curve when you want to kind of follow these practices. Um, Pulumi is designed to use the languages that you are familiar with in your application development lifecycle. So um, it allows you to declaratively define your infrastructure, but in a language that you're familiar with that could be imperative. For example, um, Go, TypeScript, JavaScript, Python, and uh, .NET languages like C Sharp and F Sharp are all available as Pulumi, um, what we call Pulumi SDKs. Um, and this means that the learning curve to kind of get started with infrastructure as code is dramatically reduced because you don't have to go and learn this whole new um, kind of configuration format or understand like a really complex YAML file. Um, you know, it's it's kind of languages that you feel familiar with. Yeah, that's really cool. Um... So I, I've dealt with some infrastructure as code tools. Do you find it's easier to adapt because you're living in your own language at that point? Or is there still kind of some nuance to it? Um, I think there's still nuance, but I can only talk from my own experience as somebody who was probably a stronger infrastructure person than I was a software developer. Okay. Um, learning, learning the ideas and principles uh, behind software development, um, but in in the kind of area of infrastructure meant that I became a stronger software engineer um, by using Pulumi. And I think the reverse is true. If you are, if you find that you are a, a great software engineer, but you kind of get confused by the idea of cloud infrastructure and cloud computing and cloud providers, um, being able to access those things via the language that you are already known, that you're familiar with, I think really kind of increases the learning curve and, and stops you feeling so overwhelmed about everything. Yeah, I have to admit that it's pretty frustrating as so I would consider myself more of a front end developer, but somewhat full stack as well. 
And it's it's super difficult in my mind to start learning. It's almost like a whole new concept. Like, yeah, I get there's databases and there's there's servers or whatever else you need to stand up back there. But having to dive in and uh, now I got to learn like cloud formation and VTLs and all this stuff. It's like, oh, my gosh, it's it's just one more thing that you have to do. So it's really cool to uh, to figure that out or to, to have that tool set in your own language, I should say. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's something that I, again, like in, in my previous career, I've been the person who was trying to teach developers about these concepts. And the thing that really surprised me was that, you know, I, I really like learning these kind of new languages that aren't quite, you know, full programming languages. But a lot of the time, like, you know, you just want to get your application from your laptop into the cloud so that people can use it. Um, and being able to use a tool that speaks your language is, you know, a massive leg up, really. Yeah, for sure. Um, so why would someone want to adapt infrastructure as code? Uh, I mean, is it just, is it going to simplify your world the first time? Like if you're an MVP, would you suggest immediately diving into it? Or is it something that you want to maybe get to kind of gradually? What's your view on that? Um, I think it, it really does depend on your circumstances, but I think when when you're trying to get your idea off the ground and you just kind of want to iterate quickly and see how things work, um, you know, it might be the case that you just kind of go into the AWS console and you kind of click around in there and create an, uh, uh, an you know an API gateway or a Lambda function and upload your you know your Lambda function uh, manually, but I think a lot of people might listening along might find that eventually that feels like it just doesn't really work anymore, um, especially if you're in a, in a situation where it's not just yourself, but multiple people kind of working on the same thing. Um, it's really, really hard to know what somebody's changed if you're just clicking around in the console. Um, and th there always reaches a point, whether in you're in kind of MVP stages or, um, you know, if you're in, you know, further down the line, where you start to realize that you need to be able to kind of roll back to a good state or you need to be able to know what happened at a certain time. Um, and this is where infrastructure as code really kind of takes its own path because it means that you are following the familiar software development lifecycle that you probably used to in your front end or back end application uh, stuff like you know peer review uh, version control so you can roll back if there's there's issues um, you know all the kind of great stuff that you're used to um, you can now apply it to the infrastructure that's running your application um, you know it's it's auditable it's repeatable um, if you uh, a great example that I always use is, especially if you're in the MVP stage, um, let's say you want to turn things off during the evening when you're not working, um, and then you want to get back to a known good state tomorrow. Um, the amount of work that you have to do to, to actually do that in the console can often be quite laborious. Um, whereas if you kind of adopt infrastructure as code early on in, in, you, you know, in, in, your, um, in your journey, you can just do Pulumi up and you know everything's kind of going to be in a working state the way it was yesterday. Um, and there's a bunch of other really great benefits as you add more teams, but that's that's what I always like to think of. Like, it, it might seem daunting to adopt this early on, um, but it's going to save you time later. Um, and the, I think anybody who's trying to get like a, a, a small application up and running um, will will probably run into the same feelings where they're kind of like, I'm not, I don't really want to do this again for the fifth hundredth time, you know. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I think infrastructure code is something that's been with me with me for a long time. Um, but if you're kind of new to it, I think it's worth learning even if you even if you're in the early stages but but don't waste too much time early on like kind of get get things up and running and then it, it kind of usually feels obvious when when the right time is
Yeah, I kind of feel like if you're if you're used to serverless or infrastructure as code that that's kind of building things out like that. Um, the the interesting part for me is that you kind of it's like second nature at some point you start to dive into it and instead of like oh i'm gonna go to the firebase console or i'm gonna go to the aws console you're actually like okay i've got i've got this kind of architecture laid out in my mind or actually in an architectural blueprint and i can just start kind of coding it up and and working through that procedure before we even hit the console which is fantastic because then you know all the interconnections are there you don't have to worry about API keys leaking out later on. All of those like really, really nice to have items that that sit within there. The the part for me, and, and maybe you can help me understand this. So you spoke to it a little bit. Um, when when you're in that MVP mode, if you have all of that documented up and you spin down like all of your resources, is there a way that um, the data is able to be saved when you're kind of in that infrastructure as code too. So like, let's say I, I uh, spin up a new Amplify site, which has DynamoDB in the, in the back of that. Um, is there a functionality there that's going to say, well, you know, we had this up for a day and we ended up adding this many users or these blog posts or whatever it might be. Are you having a way to pull in that data and add that to like your scripts within infrastructure as code, or is that something kind of separate? Well, it kind of depends on where your data layer is, right? Like if you were using a standard SQL database, running a backup before you shut down the database and then restoring that, that's super easy. Uh, DynamoDB has a similar concept. You can kind of back up those things to, to buckets. It's kind of outside of the, the infrastructure as code mentality. And I think the for me, the idea that um, you if you have data that's in there that's important, um, you know, having good backup practices is a really good idea, but you probably don't want to be destroying it on a regular basis. And yeah. there's ways within your infrastructure as code tooling, whichever you choose. And obviously I would highly recommend Pulumi, but there's ways within your infrastructure as code tooling to kind of separate those critical things that's in your data layer from the things that you can kind of do without like your front end and, and back end applications. Um, and that's usually what you would find in terms of best practices, like a bunch of different things like cloud formation has stacks for example you might have one stack for your database and one stack for your um for your um like your web, your, yeah your web tier or whatever um and then like in palumi we have this concept of projects and stacks as well that allows you to kind of separate those two things so it's 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 flexible enough so that you can kind of uh, achieve those things um and allow you to kind of just save money where you need to and kind of create repeatability where you need to um obviously as an oper as a former operations person good backups are important yeah. um you know do that early you'll you'll save yourself a lot of heartache if you uh uh, if you do that early. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so actually, let me let me click the banner here. Do you actually find that infrastructure's code ends up taking longer? Um, or is it kind of just a skill that you, you start to realize, you know, I, I have to have this because of repeatability or scalability or whatever you want to talk through? 
You know, I thought a lot about this question after we kind of did the preparation, and and, and I, I thought of a, uh, an analogy which I think really applies in this particular situation. So, I think everybody who's done any kind of IT work probably started out with a traditional kind of GUI on their local machine. You know, they might have done, um, you know, let's say you're copying a folder from one place to another. It's it feels pretty easy a lot of the time to copy that folder in like the the Finder or Windows Explorer, and then. As you start to understand that there's this thing called the terminal, um, it feels harder to begin with. It's 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 got that learning curve, and it, it's got a bit of an uh, you know a, a bit of uh, difficulty at the start. But I, I certainly, and I'm sure there's many people out there listening who feel the same way. I certainly don't think I could go back the other way. Like it feels natural now for me to move things around in the terminal or to operate in the terminal um, or to operate in your, you know, even if you look at things from an, from an IDE perspective, like if you use VS Code or another, um, another IDE kind of doing things, hand editing them, but on like text files was, was made sense originally. And then as you get all those kind of new features in the IDE, it feels like second nature. Um, and I think infrastructure as code has a very similar like learning curve. The first two or three times that you're going to do it is probably going to feel a little frustrating. Um, I certainly think it feels less frustrating if you're using something like Pulumi, but it feels a little frustrating. And then, you know, in, in four to six weeks or an, any other hypothetical amount of time, um, you almost feel like it's second nature and you just can could not ever go back to doing it the other way. Um, and I, I really like that kind of idea that it's, it's, it's a journey that you're going on and it's just that you have to kind of take that decision to step from what you know into something that is you know going to be easier later on down the line um so it, you know to give you a more succinct answer it does have a learning curve it's not easy the first time um you know you do have to learn some new concepts um but ultimately it's going to give you a lot of benefits in the long run um and it's going to make your life a lot easier so when when we talk about like it's it would take a little bit of time um, I've found switching from like Google Cloud Platform over to AWS, and I, I have dabbled in the Azure side of things, mostly on, on the DevOps side of, of builds and things. But I feel as though every single one of those platforms takes a long time to understand the products and understand kind of what you're doing. Do you think infrastructure as code helps to abstract that a little more where you, you know you need a data layer and so... Um, you know, I, I think I think in serverless or Terraform, I can't remember. I haven't I used many of them in a while, but there's a way to generically kind of say I need this thing. Is that something that Pulumi also helps with, or do you have to still know the underlying uh, uh, product or cloud platform? I should say very specifically when you're trying to do this. So we. Uh... Uh, you know, one of the things that we have is the Pulumi Cloud uh, library, which tries to abstract some of these concepts away. So, you know, I just want a database and I don't care what cloud provider I'm in. Um, Pulumi has the capability of building that. Um, and we have some stuff in preview uh, that kind of shows examples of that. But ultimately, like if, if you're building an application, you still kind of need to know underneath what what um, what things you need. Um, and you have the decisions to make, like, do I use DynamoDB? Do I use MySQL or RDS or, you know, one of the other cloud providers data data layers and you know i i totally understand where you're coming from like you know this sometimes you go into these cloud providers and you click on all the products that are available and it's just this overwhelming list of 500 different things yeah. Um, yeah. i don't think Pulumi is really going to kind of make that easier um 
certainly in the long, long sorry certainly in the short term uh but in the long term that's something that we hope to be able to achieve of, of kind of making these um you know, off-the-shelf libraries that just say, hey, I want a database. Um, and I don't really know which cloud provider I'm working in, but here's the database that I'm asking for. Um, and, you know, we have the building blocks available to do that. Um, and if you work in an organization that has multiple cloud providers, you can build your own as well. That's another thing that Pulumi allows you to do. Um, oh, so, like, if, if, you, if you work at a company and you know, you have a, be a set of best practices around your infrastructure, like you want everybody to use API gateway, you can build um, libraries that are resharable and reusable, we call them components, that allow you to say to anybody who's even less familiar than with this than yourself, you just say, hey, just, in you know, NPM install this package and then fill out some of the defaults and it will do everything in the way that we expect. And this is something yeah. that we see we, this is something we see our customers using on a regular basis, um, you know, to build these best practices for people. Does does that have to then get pulled into all of your different SDKs or is there some magic happening there? Uh, there's some magic in the back end. So like, let's say we have this library that we call AWS X uh, or Crosswalk. Um, and this is uh, abstracting a lot of like the best practices for like if you want to build a VPC in AWS or if you want to, you know, spin up a database um, in AWS. Um, that is literally just a um, uh, an, an installable uh, NPM package. And the magic is happening in the kind of what we call the Pulumi engine. Um, and it it allows you to um, kind of declaratively declare what you want these best practices to look like. Um, and if you go and look at it, it's uh, Pulumi-AWX uh, or AWS X on GitHub. Um, it's just a standard TypeScript library. Um, it yeah. just follows um, follows best practice TypeScript stuff. And so there's a bunch of interfaces and a bunch of uh, exported classes that you can use. Um, but you can build these yourself very easily as well. Cool. Um, okay. So I think just to turn the corner a little bit and focus a little, kind of more on the Plumi product as a whole, which we, we have a little bit, but kind of tying in that infrastructure as code. Um, so what makes Plumi different? Um, I, I think I, I kind of shopped it around. I'm like, hey guys, over in my day job, my, my regular company, I'm like, hey, um, what does this actually do versus like Terraform? And they're like, oh, it's just, it's Terraform under the hood. What is this thing? And so um, can you talk through why like this is so much different or how it applies to, to those different, uh, those, those different infrastructure as code um, packages? Yeah, I think one of the things that uh, in my my day job as a as a Pulumi engineer, one of the things that I deal with the most is like, isn't this just Terraform under the hood? Um, and I could say uh, on record categorically that that's not the case. Um, the Pulumi, um, how Pulumi is related to Terraform is that. Um, our some of our providers, um, i.e., the things that interact with the cloud provider that you might be using, for example, AWS or you know something uh, more uh, nuanced like say Cloudflare as a DNS provider, okay. we we use um, their uh, CRUD um, schema, so their create, replace, update, delete schema. Um, we use that to actually pass that into what we call the Pulumi engine. Um, and so the only thing that we actually use is the output of like all of the API specification. Um, and the reason that we do that is because there's so many cloud providers out there that for us to build native providers 
directly from the APIs is going to be extremely time in time in intensive. Um, we do have several um, providers that are built directly from the upstream cloud providers API, one of which is Azure. So if you are using Azure as a cloud provider, we have full 100% API compatibility and coverage with Azure uh, by building our provider directly from them. Um, and the same happens with Kubernetes if you are uh, lucky or unlucky enough to be using Kubernetes. So that's the kind of difference between uh, Terraform in terms of how it operates. In terms of the user experience, again, like we, um, you know, we have a native SDK in the language that you feel familiar with. Um, and, you know, we've seen time and time again that the uh, the feel of using Terraform versus the feel of using Pulumi um, is a very different experience. And, you know, a lot of people that, that have adopted Pulumi kind of have this magical moment where they just realize that they no longer have to kind of deal with this this uh, the syntax that is unfamiliar with them um, and the levels of productivity that, that tend to happen is, is obviously quite surprising. Um, there are other things in the market that, um, you know, that you might be familiar with. CloudFormation is another one. Um, it's always worth remembering that CloudFormation is AWS native uh, specific. So again, if you're DNS registrar, if you, you know, if it's in Cloudflare, you can't use uh, CloudFormation to do that without some, uh, mm. some tricks and, and things that you get hurdles you got to jump through. Um, and I personally, and in the, I will say this is just a personal opinion, having used CloudFormation for very many years, CloudFormation got me into more trouble than it got me out <laughs> of. Um, you know, like you end up with stacks that are stuck or like aren't oh. able to update, or for some reason, the stack is set to update in progress and you you don't know why and um you know and again like that is something that, that i've run into personally yeah, um yeah, and, and it just feels like a black box that you just can't ever debug and you know i i distinctly remember engaging the AWS support once about a stock cloud formation stack and them not even knowing how to fix it and telling me to delete it um does, so does you know we actually allow you to figure those things out or is that still going to be an issue yeah, so Pulumi executes locally on your machine. Um, so it's not like CloudFormation where you just send it off to AWS and the execution happens in the background without you actually knowing what's happening. It happens locally. So, um, you know, you, you can run into problems. Uh, Pulumi stores um, the the way that the, your infrastructure is supposed to look in its state. Um, and you can manipulate that state locally if you need to. Uh, you can run commands locally if you get issues or debugging problems. Um, the, the errors that get thrown are thrown to you immediately locally uh, you get a much quicker feedback loop than kind of send dispatching something off to cloud formation and kind of praying a little bit and hoping for the best um you know and that's not to disparage cloud formation in in, in a lot of ways like the serverless framework i know uses cloud formation under the hood um and you know it's just a kind of nice uh, abstraction around cloud formation um it it, it kind of does its job but as soon as you want to kind of operate across cloud providers you you need a, a different thing um and you know that's what we we offer we have I think last count, and I'd have to go and count again, but I think last count we had over forty different providers, um, oh. and new new ones adding every uh, being added every day. Um, so yeah, so it's actually, I'm going to throw. Oops, not in that view. I'm not. I'm going to throw the uh, the site up here for those on YouTube. This will make total sense. Um, if you're listening to the, the podcast, I'd I'd really uh, tell you to go check out YouTube after you get done and see some of this. But I'll try to describe it as we go through it. Um, so I have the Plumy website up um, on the screen right now, and it's just kind of walking through a few different things of, of how you kind of create and then 
do deploy and manage. Um, as we're talking about kind of that, those different providers and things, I want to just go through each one a little bit um, to understand when when we say things like, well, serverless is doing cloud formation. And I've experienced that, um, you know, going from Amplify, it takes forever for cloud formation to finish to serverless, um, which actually just like uploads it all S3 and it seems magically quicker. I don't know how, but someone tried to describe it to me and uh, I agreed at that time. I'm not technical enough at that layer to understand it. But um, so I have up here kind of, you know, Plumi and the, the serverless framework and how that's different. Do you mind if we walk through kind of some more specifics around why that's different? Yeah, so um, the serverless framework, if you're familiar with it, like um, it uses what we would call in Pulumi a configuration language to actually define the state of your infrastructure. So um, you have a YAML template um, that will kind of define the state of how you want something to look. Um, and then it kind of dispatches it off to CloudFormation and CloudFormation does the actual execution and kind of takes care of that. Um, one of the problems that kind of comes up regularly for customers who are migrating from serverless to Pulumi is that they've reached that point in their kind of generation of infrastructure where they need to have lots of different configuration values or they need to do things, say, if you want to have things in different AWS regions or you want to have di differences between your development and your production infrastructure, um, as soon as you start to have to deal with that YAML, you end up doing things like templating, you uh, end up doing things like uh, variable substitution um, inside the YAML document, um, and it can be... <laughs> it can be it can be incredibly error prone, um, and it, you know it, it can cause you more problems than you actually um, than you actually solve. Um, with Pulumi, because it's a sh it's using the language that you're familiar with, um, and we have strong typing as well in inside those SDKs, especially for something like TypeScript or um, you know Go, if you're familiar with that. Like it allows you while you're actually writing your infrastructure to kind of get that feedback as you go along. It won't execute anything until the actual application compiles and gets deployed locally. Um, so you don't have those problems where you have to wait those, you know, several, even if it's even if it's via serverless, which is much quicker than via Amplify, um, you know straight away as soon as you, as soon as you run Pulumi up that there's a problem with your code. Um, and, uh, you know, it allows you to kind of get rid of those kind of pain points. Um, and, and again, like I... Um, you know, there's a comment here about a pile of bash scripts. I have been personally responsible for writing piles of bash scripts. Um, you know, I have horror, you know, nightmares sometimes about some of the bash scripts that I've written. Um, and, you know, they're incredibly error prone and they can cause you some serious problems. And as you get to the stage where your customers are using your infrastructure, um, you want to have a high degree of confidence that when you run it, it's going to work. Um, and, and in a lot of these kind of bash script yaml file type things that's not always the case um you know there's there's uh, you know extensive documentation out there on on the internet about how uh, this bash script brought the entire website down or this incorrectly formatted yaml file was like you know was brought something down and broke something and this just doesn't happen with palumi's um kind of uh, approach to things so I've, I've done like the basics like of Pulumi and gone through the setups and some of the Git repo um, items, but my understanding of like how that would be prevented, I, I still am not quite there. So if, 
if you were to kind of create a, a plumey, um, I don't know if you call it a script or a program program. Yeah. Okay. A, a program. Um, when, when you're compiling that, how do you know before it like hits? So I'm used to AWS CloudFormation hitting a point and going, whoa, that database isn't there. And it completely crashes down. Is that, is, are those the kind of things that are, that Plumi can help prevent or is it still, yeah, it, it can prevent a lot in the program itself, but once it goes up, there could be additional issues still. It's it's more the former. So um, one of the things that Pulumi really uh, wants you to do or any kind of infrastructure code thing expects you to do is define your actual, all of your infrastructure from within the program. So let's say um, uh, my, uh, my RDS database um, is... Um, not defined via Pulumi. I can reference that uh, via what we call a get request um, and then pass it to the other parts of my Pulumi infrastructure program. Um, and if that doesn't exist, it will say, could not find this database. Yeah. And it will stop at that moment. Um, you know, um, but you know, the, obviously the best practice is to define your database and your web application together, deploy them as one, and you can reference the things between them. So um, one of the things that Pulumi has is this concept of outputs. Um, and so when you create an RDS database, you get a bunch of things back from AWS, like the yep. um, the entry point, the ARN, like the URL. You can then pass that to your other resources, like your web tier directly. And sometimes if you want, you can even do that directly into your application. Um, and so let's say you're kind of creating a Lambda function behind an API gateway. Um, you can be very, very confident that the um, the database URL is exactly what you need it to, even if that changes for some reason. Um, and you could pass it all the way down into your application in the same language that you're familiar with. Um, and that obviously means that you're in a position where you don't have to have those kind of things you mentioned where you're like, hey, this database doesn't exist. And like, you know, you kind of throw your hands up and go, oh, well, okay. Um, and then kind of go back the other way. Um, sure. So, you know, without actually being able to, to kind of show an example, um, and there's plenty of examples on the website if you kind of take a look at, sure. um, you know. Yeah, um, maybe we'll have you on outside of the podcast and just do a full on demo on, uh, for like Coding Cat, we'll do a blog or something. And yeah, absolutely. Dive into do some examples there. Um, so I think my, my buddies at work will kill me if I don't like harp on this some more. What, so I think, I think we covered it a little bit, but you were kind of saying like, yeah, you hear that a lot, that, that Terraform still under the hood. It, like how, how does it use Terraform? How does it not, you know, can you talk through that for me at least? So I can go back to work and be like, no, this is how it works. So um, the, the without actually, if you the, on the website for those people watching on um, online, if you kind of go and look at the how it works, um, uh, and it's on the left there, architecture and concepts. Um, cool, that's the one. Um, and then there's a how it works page. Um, how Pulumi works at the bottom there, uh, on the left. There we go. Um, so essentially, um, the difference between um, us and, and any other kind of infrastructure as code platform is we have this, this Pulumi engine, right? And that is the thing that actually talks directly to the cloud provider's API. Um, and so if you're creating something in Azure or you're creating something in AWS, the create, the update, and the delete actual execution is a, um, a an engine that we have built um, that takes... Um, 
information from your like language SDK, um, whether that be TypeScript or Go or F Sharp, and translates it into a create, update, or delete process. Um, okay. Now, in order for us to actually be able to create the SDK, um, we need to know what resources are actually available in AWS, in Azure, in Terraform. Sorry, in Kubernetes, not Terraform. Um, so we need to know what those resources are. So we need to know about all the RDS options, all the little configurable options that are available in RDS, um, and all the little configurable options that are available in Kubernetes or Azure. We need to know what those are. And in order to generate what we call the schema or the full list of options for any resource, we use the Terraform provider to generate that schema. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so if you imagine, like if you imagine a, um, let's say a, a, AWS, published a full JSON document of all of its different API calls and all of the parameters that you could pass, we could use that to generate okay. our provider, but they don't. Um, okay. Azure does. Azure does have this, and we generate our provider directly from that API document. Kubernetes also has this, and we generate our provider directly from the Kubernetes API schema definition. So all of the different resources that are available, all the different functions that are available, we get that directly from those providers. But for those providers where we don't have that information, essentially what we do is we just generate all of the different create, replace, update, delete things from the Terraform provider, um, which has been, you know, basically crowd shared over many, many years. Um, yeah. You know, lots and lots of people have contributed to these providers. They are open source and they're under a permissive license um, intentionally because they are contributed to by many, many people. Yeah. Um, you know, when you want to, when you want to, when AWS releases a new um, feature, which they will do lots of next week in, um, you know, in reInvent, uh, we will have to go through and add those resources manually to the providers that we use. Um, and that's where we, where we kind of quote unquote use Terraform. Um, so will you guys end up adding those yourself to your engine and your API calls, or will you wait until Terraform has them published? Um, maybe so, maybe you're doing the pull request and adding it. I don't know. Um, so one of our uh, one of my colleagues, great friend, um, is is Paul Stack. He was one of the top three contributors to Terraform providers of all time. Um, so he is you know very very familiar with Terraform, and we have forked providers, used upstream providers, um, you know contributed to upstream providers. Um, obviously, I will say that Terraform is obviously a competitor of ours. Um, and so, you know, we we have a relationship in which we contribute back where we need to and where we can. And, and um, you know, but ultimately, that's the that's the relationship between us and Terraform. And I think um, one of the things that I would certainly like to do is kind of make sure that that understanding, like the actual execution model, uh, the engine and the CLI, it has nothing to do with Terraform at all. In fact, it's a completely different execution model um, that is more focused on the idea of um, eventual consistency and promises um, rather than um, the way Terraform works, which is to kind of generate this graph of what all the possibilities are. Um, so it's a very different mechanism of operating. Um, so we talked a minute, or I, I, I think I brought it up in the beginning. So Pulumi is still 100% open source. So it begs to ask the question, how are you guys making your money? Like, what what is the operational piece to Pulumi? 
So um, in terms of the open source, we have our CLI, which is open source and is available on GitHub under github.com forward slash Pulumi forward slash Pulumi. Um, and then we have all of our providers, which are open source under the Pulumi um, organization. Um, again, if, if you are really interested in the inner workings of this kind of stuff, you can see how we make our providers, um, as I mentioned before. Um, all of our language SDKs are generated programmatically uh, from this schema that I talked about earlier um, and they're all open source um, we make our money from what we call the Palumi console or Palumi SAS um, and the Palumi SAS is the the state management and visualization and auditing for you as an as an enterprise um, so if you are using Palumi you have to make a decision about where you're going to store what we call the state. Um, and that is, I've run Pulumi, I've created a bunch of cloud resources, and then what I need to do now is store that information about what the state of the world looks like somewhere. Um, the default is under this um, this website that you can see if you're watching the YouTube video, the Pulumi console, um, and it stores information about all of the resources that you've created, when they were created, who created them, the relationships between them. Um, if, if you do, like... Uh, we have a plan that's available available for uh, individuals, um, and also we have paid plans for team collaboration. Um, and so, if you have multiple people working on the same project, uh, then you can, um, you know, sign up for a team plan via Plumi SaaS. Um, if that's not your bag and that's not really really where you want to go, there is also the open source backends, which is allow which allows you to store all of the state that I mentioned before in a object storage bucket. So Google Cloud, uh, GCS, uh, Azure Blob Store, or S3 buckets uh, are all available as options for you to store your state. Um, so if you don't want to um, kind of go down the path of having that state managed by um, a SaaS solution, you can use those uh, object store buckets. Uh, what I will say is that Pulumi's unique uniqueness as well against some of the other competitors is that we never actually see any sensitive values. Um, so when you use the Pulumi SAS, if you have things like database passwords, those do not get stored in plain text and we cannot even reverse them. So they're, um, they're encrypted at rest and, and in, inside the state as well. Very cool. Um, so this, this is by no means a, a pitch. We're not currently sponsored by Pulumi or anything like this. And I just want to like really check out the, the technical detail and if it would actually help in all of our projects. But, um, you know, with, with you going through that, I, I do just want to show for the, the folks um, that are on YouTube the pricing page and then just kind of explain at, at the current time of, of this posting where it sits at. So um, for the things that I'm messing around with, it's in this community edition, which is awesome for open source, um, uh, open source product like this. I can mess around all day long and, and actually create these deployments for, for zero dollars. So mm -hmm. I was pretty excited about that to be able to check it out. Um, it looks like you guys have a, a team starter for like three team members for $50 and a 25 team, um, uh, team pro for $75. And then obviously some, some custom things that go on here, um, as well. So I just want to, to bring that up before we jump into kind of our, our perfect picks as we like to call them, uh, here on perfect.dev. Yeah. What I will say is that fun. You're, you're, uh, my first, you're my first person on for the new season. And, uh, uh my wife and I started up, a 
I have another thing called Perfect App Fun, and it's it's bleeding into my podcast, unfortunately. <laughs> awesome. Well, well, just just a quick thing about the pricing page that you just yep. saw is we are actually making some changes Bring to the way up. that looks. Uh, we are making some changes to the way that looks as well. Like we've had pretty good feedback from the community that it's not always immediately obvious what's going on in here. Um, and so we, we kind of have some changes coming to our pricing page, which I'm super excited about. Um uh, that, that makes it a lot more obvious. Like you see at the top there, we've got the Palumi Community Edition. Um, if you scroll out, scroll Ooh. up there. Um, uh, like we actually don't have a great thing on our pricing page that shows that you can not use any of these cloud-hosted backends. Um, yeah, it yeah. is available and it is there. Uh, but one of the pieces of feedback we've had is like, I don't want to use any of this stuff. So, <laughs> um, you know, we, we're making some great changes and our wonderful new UX designer, Susan, is, is hard at work on that. Very cool. Yeah, it's a good site already. So uh, it'll be exciting to see the improvements. Um, so one of the picks, um, I will bring up here. Um, I don't remember if you picked this or not. I'd have to bring up my sheet, but this is the, uh, Plumy example. So do you want to just talk a second about where this is at? I, I, I have it up on the screen. It's, it's github.com slash Plumy slash examples. Um, and you guys have it ton of them do you just want to talk about it a minute yeah so one of the great things i think about this examples is it kind of covers all of the different languages that we support and it covers a lots of different cloud providers um, and lots of different scenarios so we've got simple examples to more complex examples um you know we are work hard at work on better ways to visualize this and and you know make it available to people as they come along rather than just a big long list of of examples but it it's you know i use this almost every day um if there is an example of something you would like to do um, for example, you want to try out a Kubernetes cluster or you want to create a small application with DynamoDB, there's probably um, information in the examples that will show you how to do that in Pulumi um, in the language of your choice. Um, so, you know, this is a great reference for me. If you are interested in getting started with Pulumi, this is a great place to go. And most of these different examples can just be Git cloned and then you just run Pulumi up and it will just work, uh, essentially. Um, and I'm responsible for curating those examples. So if you feel like you have a great example, um, you know, please feel free to open a pull request and we'll get it added to the list. Yeah, very cool. I, I was excited to see how much TypeScript. So I, I'm a Angular guy and live in TypeScript all the time. So uh, my most recent project is all Node.js um, with JavaScript, no TypeScript. So it's been it's been interesting going back <laughs> to that world too. <laughs> yeah. Um, so just going to kind of wrap it up there and do a little bit of the, the fun side of the house. Um, Lee, I, I'm going to put you on the spot to go first. What is what is your perfect pick for the day? I, I think we both, uh, we both wanted to fight over this, but um, <laughs> what I have been kind of uh, doing in my downtime over the last couple of weeks is uh, like watching um, the new Netflix show, uh, The Queen's Gambit. Uh, I think it's a fascinating TV show and it's, uh, you know, I'm a few episodes in and it was extremely gripping. Um, you know, so uh, I would highly recommend that. Um, the, the second thing that I will also say is that I am a... 
uh, as you can probably almost tell from my accent, I'm from the UK. I've lived here for lived here in Seattle for three years, um, and uh, I'm a huge soccer fan. Um, and my hometown club of Burnley um, is a Premier League soccer team, and nobody's ever heard of them. Um, we so, call it football, just so you know, I other, yeah, we can call it football. Other, yeah, for sure. Other listeners um, understand. Yeah, we can we can call it football. Um, but like it's it's uh, it's my my labor of love for for many many years. Um, and if you are a soccer fan and you support Manchester United or Liverpool or any other kind of big name English Premier League team, then don't forget about Lonely Burnley. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's something that I it's the town that I grew up in, and uh, I always like to get an opportunity to talk to people about it. Um, That's super. Exciting. So yeah, very cool. Um, my, my pick for today, at least for this cast, I got another cast coming after this one, as you can tell the dates coming up, but, um, we are approaching quickly AWS re-event. So this might be my pick for a couple days. And the, the biggest reason I'm picking this and going to keep driving at home, this is going to be the first time, and maybe you've, you've heard of it that they are doing this completely free. And that is not like AWS at all. Usually it's like, I don't know, I want to say it's close to $1,000 usually. So it goes for three weeks this year. Um, and there's going to be a ton of content covered. And I'm just kind of blown away that it's all going to be free. So I think they are supposed to release the agenda soon. Maybe it finally snuck out there, but... This will be one of my my perfect picks uh, for a while, just to remind people that it's coming up. Um, I also wanted to uh, pick Queen's Gambit, but since since I since I can't do that on on the Netflix side, I I'm gonna pick uh, the Unicorn. I think it's just called the Unicorn. Um, it's a fun little show about a, a a dad that his his wife has passed away and what that means. So they start the show about a year in and. It's, it's pretty fun to watch and fall asleep to usually, but it's a, a kind show. Any yeah, other, absolutely. Any other last thoughts, Lee, as we wrap it up? Uh, yeah, the only thing I will say is that over the next couple of weeks, as we kind of come up to reInvent, I will be doing uh, an introduction to Pulumi Workshop, which is available on our website. Uh, it is free to sign up and it will take you through all of the kind of basics getting started of Pulumi and introduce you to terminology. Uh, so I'll be running at least three of those sessions over the next three weeks. So if anything that I've talked about sounds compelling, then please feel free to join me. Awesome. Very cool. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Lee. I hope to have you back on. We'll we'll do some stuff on the YouTube channel to demo Pulumi and uh, get some blogs out there for it. It's, it's such a neat product. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye now.